And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do men say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. And he called to them, the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have heard the name Forrest Finn. He's an 87-year-old multimillionaire who lives in New Mexico. He made his fortune in dealing with art and antiquities. He had some very high-end clients who were attracted to some of his rare finds. At one point, he owned the peace pipe of Sitting Bull, and another time he owned a mummified falcon that had been in King Tut's tomb. Well, he made this vast fortune, and he loved all of his treasures. But in 1988, he was diagnosed with cancer, and he felt that death was imminent. And so he developed this crazy idea that he would have his treasures buried beside him when he entered the grave. And so they would be with him forever, and um, he would never lose sight of them. Well, he was able to beat cancer, but the idea of hidden treasure kind of intrigued him. And so several years ago, he took a small bronze box and filled it with gold and precious jewels and supposedly hid it somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. Then he wrote a book entitled The Thrill of the Chase. And in the book, he included several clues about where this treasure is located. Now, he said that it's no place dangerous, it's not underwater, and it's somewhere in the Rocky Mountains between New Mexico and Canada at an elevation between 5,000 and 10,000 feet. And so, of course, that would be easy to find. But thousands and thousands of people have been searching for it all these years, and it still hasn't been found. There have been groups and clubs and online uh, forums that discuss the meaning of the clues and where this reward can be found. Now, over the years, several have been injured, and so he has come out and repeated that it's no place dangerous, that it's a place that an 80-year-old man could place it safely. But nevertheless, 
As of this past February, at least four people have died while trying to find it. Now imagine that. They're looking for this uh, supposed hidden treasure, and they were willing to risk the greatest possession that they had, their lives, to find it. What does it profit someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their life? This morning, I want to continue on with our sermon series, Questions. What does Christ ask of us? Throughout the series, we've been looking at some of the many questions that Jesus raises in Scripture. He would ask questions of his disciples. He would ask questions to the crowds and to the authorities. And we're taking a few of these questions and wrestling with them on Sunday morning as if Jesus is in our midst and asking us directly. And so this morning, how would we respond to the question, what does it profit a man to gain the entire world and yet forfeit his soul? This morning's scripture passage comes from the Gospel of Mark, and the author is telling of the time that Jesus took his disciples to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, this was an important area in the time of Christ. It was at the base of Mount Hermon, and there was a large natural spring that came from the base of the mountain, and this spring was the main source of the Jordan River. But it also was a place of pagan worship. Specifically, the Greek god Pan was worshipped there, among some other gods. And so it was a place of evil debauchery. It was... It was not a good place to visit, and the disciples must have been wondering, why did Jesus bring us here? But Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? And then he went on to ask them the question that we'll be looking at in two Sundays from now, who do you say that I am? And Peter boldly proclaimed, you are the Christ. And so Jesus went on to explain to the disciples what that meant. And the scripture says he explained it plainly. In other words, he wasn't using parables. He told them what was going to happen. He said that he would suffer and be rejected and be persecuted. He would be killed, and in three days he would rise again. Well, for Peter, this was too much. And so Peter took him aside to rebuke him. Now think of this for just a moment. Peter had just proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ. In saying that, Peter meant that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the representative of God on earth. And here Peter had the audacity to take the messenger of God aside and tell him what he was doing wrong. But if Peter was anything, he was impetuous and passionate, and Jesus stopped him. And he said the words to Peter that must have cut him to the quick. He said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not on the side of God, but you are on the side of men. Now imagine how, mu- how that must have sounded to Peter. He was standing in Caesarea Philippi, this, this awful place that represented everything that stood opposed to God And Jesus just said that he was standing opposed to God. But Jesus went on to explain what it meant. For him to be the Messiah Messiah meant that he would suffer. He would be rejected. 
He would be crucified and he would be raised from the dead. Then he said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his life? He was saying there that he could save his life, but at what cost? He would lose his whole purpose of coming to earth. There is a life that's just lived and a life that's worth living. And Christ was trying to demonstrate this to the disciples. I think there are three things that we can discuss this morning that can help us answer the question and help us to live a life worth living. First, know who you are. When Jesus asked these questions to the disciples, he wasn't so much trying to get them to make this statement or even try to find out if they believed he was the Messiah. He was trying to get them to understand what that really meant, what he stood for, what he represented. Jesus could have uh, chosen a path where he wasn't rejected by the world. He could have chosen a path where he was adored by everyone and his physical life would have been spared. If you remember, as soon as Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, he went out into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. And one of the tests that Satan put to Jesus was he showed them the entire world and he said, all of the kingdoms of the world will be yours. All you have to do is worship me. But how could God the Son submit to Satan or anything or anyone? How could he gain the whole world and yet forfeit his very reason for being? Jesus understood who he was as the Christ. And everything he would do throughout his life would flow out of that identity. He knew who he was. The same can be true for us If we know our identity, it will influence everything we do. But sometimes we get that mixed up. We assume that what we do makes us who we are. Sometimes if you ask people, who are you, they'll say something that responds to what they do in life. They'll say, well, I'm a student, I'm a mom, I'm a husband, I'm a banker, I'm an accountant, I'm a doctor. And when we put our identity in what we do in life, it can lead to some real crisis of identity later on when any kind of change happens. If we identify ourselves as students, then we have a problem when we graduate. If we identify ourselves by our jobs, if we're an accountant or a preacher or a teacher or a nurse, we have a problem when we retire. If we identify ourselves as being a spouse, we have a problem when our spouse passes away or if we go through a divorce. If we identify ourselves as parents, we have a crisis when the children leave the house or if we're struggling with infertility. Do not substitute what you do for who you are. God did not create people to be doers, but rather to be. If you want to know your identity, who you truly are, you are a child of God. That's how you've been created. That's your identity. And everything of your life should flow out of that identity. 
If you know who you are as a child of God, it will influence how you live as a student, as a parent, a spouse, a banker, a doctor, an athlete. Everything you do should flow out of who you are. Don't settle for what you do. Know who you are in life. Last week I was sharing with you that I read the biography of James Garfield. Now, he was the 20th president, and unfortunately, he was assassinated and died just 200 days into his presidency. But more and more, I am really impressed by this man. He had an incredible life, and it flowed out of the sense that he knew who he was. He had deep convictions and a deep faith in God. He knew that he was a child of God, and that led him in all the ways that he led his life. Time and again, he would face decisions that would put him up against the world, and he had to choose to walk the more difficult path. Before the Civil War broke out, politicians in the South and the North were trying to keep peace at all costs. And so there was legislation proposed that would prevent anyone from discussing slavery. They were all just going to kind of put it aside, not discuss it, and pretend like things were normal and just go forward at the, at the expense of peace. They, they just wanted peace at any cost. And James Garfield spoke vehemently against it. He said, may my arm wither in its socket before I raise it in anything that benefits the evils of slavery. Later on in life, when he was serving in the Union Army in the Civil War, he was the youngest uh, serving general in the Union Army. And they were deep in the South, and his men were camped. And in the midst of their camp, a fugitive slave broke in and ran and hid among them. And not too long after that, a man proclaiming to be this slave's master came riding in and demanded the slave to be returned to him. And no one helped him out. And so this man went on to the division commander. Now you have to understand at that time there was the law, the Fugitive Slave Act, that commanded that anyone who found a fugitive slave had to return that slave to his owner. Even though the country was at war, a southern plantation owner could ride into a Union Army camp and demand his slave be returned. And so the division commander, realizing that this was the law, he sent orders back to General Garfield demanding that Garfield's men help look for and locate and return the slave to this man. And when the messenger delivered the news to James Garfield, Garfield refused. And the messenger reminded him he could be court-martialed. And Garfield refused to divulge the location. He protected the slave. Because after all, what would it profit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose their life? Garfield would be nominated to be a candidate for presidency in 1880. Now, this is several years after the Civil War ended, and people wanted to forget it. It was so painful. 
people wanted to move on. And yet in the South, many of the pre-Civil War attitudes toward African Americans was uh, ramping up. They had been given the right to vote, but largely were denied that opportunity. And the persecutions against African Americans was terrible. And James Garfield continually spoke out against it. Now, when he was campaigning for presidency, people were telling him, his advisors, saying, you have to uh, quit talking about this, quit preaching about it, because you're not going to get any votes in the South anyway, and the people in the North are tired of hearing of it. They want to move on. They don't want anything that causes any more conflict. They just want to have some peace. But James Garfield wouldn't let it go. And in one of his campaign speeches, he addresses it head on. Here are the words from one of his presidential campaign speeches. He said, We will remember the allies who fought with us in the war. Soon after the great struggle began, we looked behind the army of white rebels and saw four million of black people condemned to toil as slaves for our enemies. And we found that the hearts of these four million were God-inspired with the spirit of liberty and that they were all our friends. Our comrades escaping from the starvation of prison, fleeing to our lines by the light of the North Star, never feared to enter the black man's home and ask for bread. In all that period of suffering and danger, No Union soldier was ever betrayed by a black man or woman. And now that they have been made free, so long as we live, we will stand by these allies. We will stand by them until the sun of liberty, fixed in the firmament of our Constitution, shall shine with equal ray upon every person, black or white, throughout the Union. Fellow citizens, fellow soldiers, In this, there is the benefit of eternal justice, and by it, we will stand forever. Know who you are and stand by that forever. Second, find your passion. Listen for God's voice in your life. Be in prayer. Study God's word so that you can become more familiar with God's voice. And if you know that you are a child of God, claim joy and gratitude and find your passion in how you can make a difference in life. Now, this question today has special significance to me because it was formative in my decision to go into the ministry. Several years ago, I was practicing as a physical therapist And I loved physical therapy, especially when I first uh, became a physical therapist. I loved working with patients. I loved everything from sports therapy and rehab to geriatrics, pediatrics, wound care. I really enjoyed being with people. But toward the end of uh, my time, I started wrestling with this sense that I was wanting to work through the church. And it was during that time that I was called to see a patient in a nursing home. It was a woman who had had poor health and poor circulation, and that caused the doctors to decide that the lower part of her right leg needed to be amputated. And they had me to go in and dress her wounds and provide wound care to ensure that it healed okay. And so I would go to the nursing home, and what 
care I was doing was very tedious and painful to her. And I tried to comfort her. I tried to speak with her. But she had had a stroke a few years earlier, and she was unable to speak or respond. And so she became so frustrated by that. Mainly, she just turned away from me when I came into the room. I would find out from the nursing staff that she was estranged from her family because of choices she had made earlier in life. She had no friends and no church connection. And when I would come in to do wound care, it was excruciating to her. And so in the midst of this, this question kept rolling around in my mind. What does it profit someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their life? I understood that what I was doing was what she needed. I understood that she needed wound care and treatment. But my heart's desire was not to treat her body, but to comfort her soul. In that, I want to make really clear, you know, that I don't believe for a minute that God was using her as an object lesson, that God made her sick so that I could hear this call to ministry. I don't think that she was alone when she died. I think God was there comforting her and healing her of all of her earthly sufferings. I do think that in the midst of this time of my life, God helped me to see that somewhere along the line, my passion had changed. I knew that as a child of God, I could serve as a physical therapist, but somewhere my passion changed. And as a child of God, I wanted to serve through the church now. All of us, when we know that we're children of God, need to reclaim that passion to make a difference in this world. Sometimes we need to regain it in the the field where we are, or maybe we need to choose a different course, or maybe we need to be reminded that what we do matters. When Jesus took the disciples to Caesarea Philippi, it was a horrible place, a place where people were exploited or where people went to exploit others place of great sinfulness and evil, and yet Jesus took them there so they could see how much the world needed a Savior. He took them there to show them how much the world needed them to live as children of God. What we do matters. This Wednesday, we will celebrate the birth of our country And I think it's a great time to remember who we are as the children of God. It's a perfect time to remember the gift of freedom that we've been given by men and women throughout the ages who have fought, given their lives on many occasions, so that we might have the liberties that we enjoy today. But these freedoms come with this sense that we should do something, we should make a difference, we should keep serving others because we are the children of God. And we know what this looks like. I don't care what party you're a part of, how you vote, you're a child of God and you have a responsibility, all of us do, to treat others with the love of God. Throughout the Bible, there are numerous times where God tells us to take care of the widows and orphans among us. In other words, take care of those who are most vulnerable in society. 
Throughout Scripture are numerous passages where God tells us to love the stranger among us. For we were once strangers in a foreign land, and God delivered us. We know the grace and mercy of God in our lives. We know what Christ has done for us, and we know that we are the children of God. And so we know how we are called to treat one another with love and kindness. This Wednesday, remember the mercy and the grace of God. Remember the gift of freedom that has been given to us in this country. And remember that we are called to make a difference in how we treat one another. And third, remember that a life worth living will make an influence on others. On this particular Holy Land trip, we were able to go visit Caesarea Philippi, and it is beautiful there. It's at the base of Mount Hermon, and this huge spring still pours out water. It's crystal clear, and you can see trout swimming in the stream. Because of all the water there, there's lush green vegetation, and the temperatures on the day that we were there were in the upper 70s, lower 80s. It was beautiful, and it was the kind of park that you would love to have right by your house, and you could go walking there every single day. But also, we saw the reminders of what had happened there. Carved into the rock are niches where they would place statues of idols that they would worship. There was a huge stone round altar there where they would perform pagan sacrifices and ceremonies. How could anyone, how could people take this beautiful place, a symbol of God's creation and love for the world, and mess it up so bad that it becomes a place of such vile, evil, terrible things. And yet we were there not because what had transpired that was bad. We were there because of the influence of Christ. Jesus' influence, the way he lived his life, would change the world and continues to change us today. Peter wouldn't always get it right. He messed up and made mistakes, but he always knew where to turn back to. He always knew that he was a child of God, and Peter would live a life worth living. And because of that, he helped to really strengthen the early church, and his influence still is felt today. We'll all mess up. We'll all make mistakes. But if we turn back to God— and remember the passion and who we are, we can make a difference. Chester Arthur was the vice president to President James Garfield. And you need to know that Chester Arthur, for most of his life, was just a yes man. He did anything he could to get ahead, and mainly that meant uh, serving at the right hand of Roscoe Conkling. Roscoe Conkling was the most powerful politician in New York at that time, and he and Chester Arthur were all about the spoils system, and that's why they hated James Garfield. They hated James Garfield because he wanted to reform the civil service. You know, today, when a new president takes office, they have about 4,000 appointments to make, which sounds crazy to me. But in the time of James Garfield, they had over 14,000 appointments. 
And you can guess what happened. Everybody wanted a job. They got handouts, and people were put in the job, and they couldn't handle it. But it's how people became more powerful and more wealthy. And that's what Conkling wanted. Specifically, James Conkling wanted to be in charge of the New York Customs House. Now, this was before the income tax, and most of the revenue of the United States government came from import fees and tariffs. And the New York Customs House accounted for one-third of the nation's revenue. And so Conkling wanted that power and that money. Well, James Garfield put together his list of presidential appointments, and he sent it to the vice president to announce to Congress. And as soon as Chester Arthur opened it up, he looked for the New York Customs House, and it wasn't Conkling's name there. In fact, it was one of Roscoe Conkling's rivals. And so he went directly to Conkling, and Conkling was furious. And so he wrote up this public letter demanding that James Garfield redo all of his presidential appointments. And at the bottom of this public letter, the vice president, Chester Arthur, signed it. He betrayed the president. Now, Arthur and Conkling went off to kind of strategize and uh, regain what they were going to do opposing President Garfield. And in the midst of that time, another man who was um, for the spoils system came onto the scene. His name was Charles Guiteau. He was a very smart man, but he had mental issues He felt that he had been instrumental in the election of James Garfield to the presidency, and so he wanted his appointment. He specifically wanted to be sent as an ambassador to Austria, or he wanted a post in Paris, and when that didn't materialize, he made a decision to kill the president. When President James Garfield died, Roscoe Conkling thought all of his dreams had come true. He just knew that Chester Arthur was going to come through for him, as he always had before. Chester Arthur always did what he said. And so he knew that everything was going to be golden from here on out. And yet he underestimated how the life of James Garfield would impact Chester Arthur. When Garfield died, Chester Arthur was deeply wounded and saddened And he realized that James Garfield had lived the life that he should be living. He was the kind of man who had morals and values and was a Christian in all that he did. And he, Chester Arthur, had not lived that way. And so he changed completely. You have to understand, he had nobody that was on his side from this point on because all the followers of Garfield didn't trust him because of how he had always lived his life. And all of the followers of Conkling didn't trust him because he would betray them. Conkling went to Arthur's office soon after he was elected, or soon after he was sworn in as president, and he brought a list of demands and things that he wanted Chester Arthur to do for him. And Chester Arthur rejected him and turned him out. And in fact, he decided that he was going to carry on the work of President Garfield, and he went, and his very first address to Congress was to say that he would endorse any civil service reform legislation that they would write up. 
and in January of 1883, the Pendleton Act was signed and put into force. Chester Arthur realized all the mistakes he had made, and he turned back to God, to his identity as a child of God, and he lived from that. And he would say later on that when he first came to Washington, D.C., Chester Arthur was one man, but the President of the United States was another. We can make mistakes, we can mess up, but we can turn back and remember who we are as children of God. We can reclaim the passion to make a difference in this world and know that if we live a life worth living, it will influence others. It will be our legacy. And so how would you respond? What does it profit for someone to gain the entire world and yet forfeit their life? It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers. Amen.